So this is our Halloween episode. I wondered if you could talk to me about any Halloween costumes of note from your youth. We don't really do Halloween here. Not we, in the same way, well, no. we didn't even... If we don't do it now, we did it even less then. And all I remember wearing is um, a set of, like, plastic glow-in-the-dark fangs. I mean, I was wearing clothes. <laughs> but there was no sort of costume. There's just so much tawdry trash around Halloween, isn't there? And you just... I remember just seeing those fangs, like, behind a sofa or something months later and just thinking, like, what a load of shit. Well, what about you? All very elaborate, I'm imagining. No, that's the thing. I was thinking about this. I had very bog standard. Like, I always went to something, but it was always really dull and basic. And I was trying to think, but it's me we're talking about. Why is that? And I think it's because every day of my childhood was Halloween. I've told you this before, but my mother dressed me up like a goddamn fool. Creepy porcelain doll. Yes, exactly. Okay. The number of pinafores she had me in, the number of little pantaloons. I saw a picture of myself the other day. That's pretty cool. Pantaloons. From when I was about seven. Hmm. And between the pinafore and my pale, sickly childhood face, I look like a goddamn pioneer ghost. I look like I got buried on the side of the Oregon Trail. All right. And I think that's why, like, during Halloween, I was like, another day. Yeah, keep Halloween in your heart always. Um, <laughs> I'm a monster every day. Yeah. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. English sweating sickness over here is Daniel. I mean, you're kind of French. I could just say the French disease. That's funny, because that's kind of rude if I call someone that. I've got it, because this is a disease only Americans get. Havana Syndrome is Abby. <laughs> so how are you today, Daniel? Well, sp spookily well. Well, I saw someone on Twitter saying that they were writhing and thriving, which I think sums me up in this, my favorite season. Oh, really? Like a kind of um, healthy eel? Well, it's funny you say that because you may notice that I'm in my Halloween costume, and I know it might seem to you that I'm not dressed as something scary, just your bog-standard sea anemone, but I'm actually going as the description of Lady Chatterley's uterus, which was the scariest thing we've seen on the show Very this good. season. Yeah, and um... Now what are you, what's this get up you have on? <laughs> You're not wearing very much. Well, <laughs> it's funny you should say that, because I'm doing it in honor of my thespian and noble forebears, the King and Duke. In Huckleberry Finn. In Huckleberry Finn, the very same, who, uh, just as the King's camelopard. So I'm just uh, a lot of body paint, a lot of stripes, and a lot of running around on all fours, because that's high art. And absolutely no clothing. This is, um, yeah, oh, yeah. you're a brave man to walk through the university like this. On, on all fours, might, <laughs> might I add. Yeah. <laughs> Probably cut through the queue for the lift pretty quickly, didn't it? <laughs> all right, let's get to some letters, please, shall we? We've had another lovely comment from adrian gentleman gentlemanly <laughs> little you know kiss on the hand 
Thanks for the shout out. Great episode. It goes to show just because it's an old book doesn't make it a great read. Brackets, this was on the monk. Let me just add. Anyway, I haven't actually read this one and now I'm sure I don't want to. <laughs> lol so yeah I well mean, we're doing our jobs right then putting you off books i'd say you could abridge that into a really good novella yeah next letter please here's another one from carney hi hello hello, hello. hi a bit informal <laughs> i love listening to your podcast i take english literature a level and it's a great way to help my wider reading that's fantastic that's that's the whole purpose that's of the show Connie. and this really threw me when I read this the first time. My book suggestion is The Collector by John Fowles. What's, what's going on with that, Wes? John Fowles had a really big moment when he was writing, didn't he? He was like incredibly famous, but he's completely gone off the radar. Mm -hmm. What's some A-level, like 17-year-old or whatever doing reading John Fowles? Well, first of all, clearly Connie has excellent taste. A sophisticate, that's why she likes our show. Yeah. Also, I love John Fowles. Daniel and I taught the French Lieutenant's Woman. Yeah, still I like do that teach a lot. it, in yeah. fact. And uh, yeah, so maybe we'll get some John Fowles on this show. Yeah. Still, so it does seem strange to me. I mean, I've got, it's not, I'm not passing any judgment on you. I'm just thinking, like, how would. Wider reading, man. Maybe she yeah. picked it up from her parents' maybe, collection. Because well, the podcast helps with her wider reading. She doesn't need to worry about all these crappy books. Freed up a lot yeah. of time for Connie. That must be it. Okay, and then I'll read our last letter here. Now, this one just came into our email. Uh, normally, I do these in order, but I'm going to skip the queue a little bit on this one purely because it has important information. Ooh. So, hi, Abby and Daniel. I wanted to tell you that I love the queer readings that you include in the episodes. As a happily bi woman who grew up seeing very little representation of who I am in culture, I really appreciate it when you not only bring the queer subtext of books to the surface, but also celebrate it with champagne, no less. Uh, well, Lindsay, first of all, I will say there are many people who worship at the altar of the 1999 movie, The Mummy. You are not alone, friend. Uh, and we are very happy to celebrate all sorts of queer identities. Where's the buy stuff in that? Oh, my sweet summer child. So... Lindsay goes on to say, I didn't get a chance to respond to your question to Patreon subscribers about what we'd like to see in terms of rewards, but I really like the bloopers and outtakes, and I'm so glad we're going to get more of those. I think a book club is a great idea, but as video calls unfortunately fill me with self-conscious fear and dread, I won't be able to take part. Now, Lindsay, you bring up a really good point. So for those who don't know, if you are a Patreon subscriber for our podcast, we are doing live book groups every other month. If you are the sort of person who is a bit nervous on video calls, you don't have to talk. If you would like to just come on and listen, and maybe if you're feeling brave, type something in the comments, that's totally fine. And for those who don't know, with our Patreon, we will be launching this first book group around the, I can't remember if it's the 1st or 2nd of November, but sign up there and we will have further details. Let me just add, it's not real champagne, it's just a sound effect. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Let me just get my notes. Um, shit. Someone's purloined them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll have to use all my powers of ratiocination to deduce what the notes said. Picture the gloomy creeks and marshes of the Chesapeake Bay. Through the mists emerges the great port of Baltimore. Riven with the deprivation of the coast licentiousness, drunkenness, and violence, but it's also touched by the dead hand of slavery. Enter from the crowd, a man of the crowd, if you will, emerging 
It's today's author. He's stumbling through the streets, wearing another man's suits, collapsing into the gutter, preparing to breathe his last breath. What happened here? It remains a mystery. Did his alcoholism finally get the better of him? Or was there foul play? The only clue is a clump of orange hair in his hand. Because it's Edgar Allan Poe and we're doing some of his stories, none of which were those alluded to in this set the scene. Not one. So, I'm pretty impressed by that. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, this is our first proper anthology episode. So we are doing a whole collection of Poe's stories mostly just the famous scary ones um so we won't be doing uh murders at the rue morgue because that's more a detective story if you want to know what text we will be doing and in what order we will be doing these the telltale heart the fall of the house of usher mask of the red death the pit and the pendulum the cast of amontillado the black cat and the raven so it should go without saying, we're going to spoil all of these stories for you. In terms of the content, you should brace yourself for a lot of proper horror. So there is eye squick. If you what, have, what does that mean then? That's just a sort of colloquial thing for damage or harm to eyes if you get squicked out by. Right, it's the squick I'm asking about. Ah, it just means you. <laughs> ah, okay, kind of squeamishness. Squeamishness, yes. Yeah. There's cruelty to animals, domestic abuse, torture, rats, hanging, knife crime, executions, axe murder, infectious disease, and corpse desecration. And I'm just going to preface this by saying this script ended up being way longer than we expected. We even ended up cutting some some texts that weren't quite as engaging like Annabelle Lee and the gold bug. We might do this in two episodes, so Whoa. let's see how we go. Are you ready to do some background? Or, because it's our Halloween episode, some black ground. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> or, um, d- disturbed ground. Ooh, profaned ground. There we go, that's it. So, Edgar Allan Poe, he was an American author and poet. And he's, as we're going to kind of cover today, he was very famous for writing gothic short stories. He was born in Boston, Massachusetts, 1809, to... The wandering actors David and Elizabeth Poe. These, you know, bit of a bit of a difficult family background because <laughs> his dad ran off quite soon after that, and his mum died while he was still an infant. So he was adopted by an upper middle class Virginian family, the Allens. Um, so that's why he's called Edgar Allan Poe. But kind of like sort of double. You'd think it'd be Edgar Poe Allen. Whatever new names come into the mix, you tack them on the end. It's like how... They didn't formally adopt him, so that might be it. Ah, okay. But it's just like, you know how I have the long-standing childhood aspiration to be like a seven-time divorcee Mm. by the time I'm 40, so I could just get a really long monogram on my suitcase? Yeah. That's sort of what I assumed was going on here, but I guess they never formally adopted him, so... Bit of a shame. So he had a bit of an itinerant youth. The Allens all moved to the UK in 1815, where Edgar went to boarding school, then they returned to the U.S. in 1820, where he went to the University of Virginia. He eventually dropped out there, went to West Point Military Academy, which he was dishonorably discharged from. During that time, he started writing poetry. He did publish some Tamerlane and other poems in 1827. But after leaving West Point in 1831, he kind of decided to make his way as a jobbing writer. And he was one of the first professional authors in America. He started writing prose works, stories and articles for various journals. He also attempted to be a publisher 
I think generally was quite unsuccessful and he lived between like kind of an itinerant life between Baltimore, Philadelphia and New York City. He only published one novel, The Fantastical Adventure Story, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. The life of a writer was highly precarious in the United States at this time due to a lack of copyright law. So this meant that because everyone just kept pirating illegal copies of Dickens and the Brontes and stuff and just printing them cheaply in American newspapers and stuff, and it was very hard for native, uh, so to speak, American writers to c- compete with that because this is free stuff. You know, it's like those adverts. You're killing the industry <laughs> by reading these pirated copies of A Tale of Two Cities or what have you. You wouldn't steal a car, would you? Yeah. Those old adverts. I, I saw a tweet, actually, that said you wouldn't purloin a letter. <laughs> so there you go. That speaks, speaks more to the life of Poe than you'd think. Alongside this precarity, Poe was generally a kind of bohemian, he was a heavy drinker, he was a bit of an adventurer, went on loads of crazy careers, and very famously when he was 26 he married his 13-year-old cousin, um, what's her name again? Poe. She was a Poe, she wasn't an Alan. This is a blood cousin. The Ugh. best kind of uh, marrying your cousin. <laughs> the best kind of incest. Yeah. He married his 13-year-old cousin, and she later died of TB. So he was basically, at this point, like a drunken frat boy trying to get his writing up to scratch. And I just keep thinking, Edgar, focus on your major, not your minor. Very good, yeah. He died in 1849 when he was 40 after being found lying in the streets of Baltimore wearing someone else's clothes. And the cause of death is a bit of a mystery. There's loads of theories as to what the cause was. One about election fraud, which is my favourite. You know about this, how they used to... Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, I really like this this theory. I think it makes a lot of sense. What they used to do in, in American elections back in the old days, not anymore... Because um, now they just stop everyone from voting, don't yes. they? Yes. But back in the old days, parties would arraign loads of people, just like passers-by in the street. Con- they just like grab yeah. you and like yeah, kidnap you. Yeah, yeah. Coop, coop you up in a pen, make you drunk, repeatedly send you to polling stations to vote. They'd like shave you. Yeah, and then bring you back, shave you, put you in a new outfit so you look like a different person and get you to vote again. Just do that repeatedly. And people like died of it and stuff because it was just so abusive as you're saying they would i think give you alcohol as initially a bit of an inducement to vote for them and then they just give you more and more and more with every turn so you kind of didn't really know what was going on and you just did push you and you'd stumble up to the voting booth <laughs> that sounds like a hard day that i have to say <laughs> you know what i mean like oh, just, all the but, costume changes wow well, yeah you're a headache people are hitting you <laughs> it's not very nice so not only was poe one of the first major american writers as well as this kind of model for the starving eccentric artist stereotype his work's also proven to be highly influential. So he, you can say that he is one of the first big like short story writers, isn't he? I think he like legitimised the short story as an artistic medium, engaging with the press in that sort of the popular press mm-hmm. in that way. He's at the sort of arse end of the Gothic and Romantic movements at the turn of the nineteenth century. So he. He's a sort of like bridges mm-hmm. romanticism and like high Victorian literary conventions, doesn't he, I would say. Or he's a kind of, or a suture, he's kind of going alongside both of them. Well, I think there was, you, you talked here about how, yeah, he bridges the gap from romanticism and the gothic to the later decadent and modernist trends. And I think our listeners can hear a real sort of continuity from the dark excesses of something like The Monk to the dark excesses of something like Dorian Gray. Yeah, this is definitely and the midpoint. This is like a midpoint. You can see the segue, but he's keeping that thread there, alive. There's a straight family tree, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Poe, fan of the Gothic. Baudelaire, fan of Poe. Wiesmans, fan of Baudelaire. And then Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde yeah, fan so, of um, Wiesmans. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, Baudelaire translated Poe's works very early, so Poe's really big in France for that reason. So, yeah, I think he's a kind of... Quite a significant figure in these respects. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I really like Poe. I don't think he's perfect, but I think he's remarkable. 
All right, Daniel, let's get to the short stories. Okay. Tale the first, the telltale heart. This opens on a very nervous man. Is it you? <laughs> I did identify with this guy a lot, actually. <laughs> Talk, talking directly to the audience. Quote, True, nervous, very dreadful nervous. I had been and am. But why? Will you say that I'm mad? So, already we've got this first person narration. With a bit of second person in it. Already gone a bit crazy, you know, already an unreliable narrator here. And on top of that, an unnamed narrator. Is that unreliable? You don't even know his name. Yeah. (laughs) Unnamed narrator Claxon, please. What's in a name? Steve or something. What's his name? Steve or something. uh, We're not going to call him Steve. Actually, that might be helpful to the listeners. I really like that idea of like the the first person hint of the second person coming in like he's already mixing so there's a dialogue element yeah so well, you're like you read that and instantly you're like oh oh so you're crazy 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 is radiating off this guy like stink lines off of pig pen well he may be mad but listen to this because <laughs> he goes on to say the disease had sharpened my senses not destroyed not dulled them above all was the sense of hearing acute so, you know, there's a lot of sensory uh, overlap there. Very synesthetic, isn't it? But also this kind of crazy obsessiveness going on. Yeah, Poe's works are very concerned with the physical sensations. This will not be the last tale we cover today who has somebody with a very sharp sense of hearing. Um, I don't want to spoil it for you, but he's mental. He hasn't got a sharp sense of hearing. I know, but I'm saying he thinks he yeah, does. I think it's more that Poe's interested in the mind and how it can kind of create sensations without them really being there, but whatever. So it all began when our narrator developed an obsession. Quote, Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. I think it was his eye. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell on me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. So, he lives an old man. That guy's got a funny eye. And he doesn't like it. (laughs) Yeah, we don't know and we never find out what this situation is. If this old man is a relative or a friend or... Queer reading, please. Lovers. Oh, hark at you. I'm ashamed I didn't think of that one. Like, we just don't know this relationship at all. Maybe there is no old man. You know what? Sure, maybe. (laughs) Maybe there's no narrator. I'm starting to be concerned that you're doing this episode on Ambien. Is that Steven Spielberg's production company? That's Amblin. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the point is, every night when this old man goes to bed, this unnamed narrator sneaks into his room and just watches him sleep. Now... This, he tells us, is proof of his sanity, because a madman wouldn't have been so careful and deliberate about it. Now, why is he doing this? Well, the old man is harmless enough, but, you know, as Daniel alluded to in his section, it's just his, quote, evil eye that annoys the narrator. I'm sorry, Daniel, but if your roommate's eyeball is whispering to you like it's the f***ing green goblin, maybe you are crazy. Go to therapy. I think this is more than therapy issue, yeah. Anyway, the eighth night that the narrator Edward Cullens, this old man's Bella Swan, 
The old man wakes up and he's like, oh, who's there? The narrator apparently sits stock still for a full hour while this old man sits up in bed looking at the darkness. After an hour, the old man groans, quote, a groan of mortal terror. The time scales in Poe's stories are really off. Mm, yeah. I'm like, a full hour of this. First of all, how would you know? Secondly, I don't think it was that long. Yeah. An hour of nothing and then a groan of mortal terror. Like, you know what I mean? Like, nothing kind of makes sense on the time scales he's saying. And we see this in story after story. But this guy's mad. I know. I'm saying just pay attention yeah, yeah. to that. I'm agreeing with you, though. So, while this old man is sitting up in bed, very slowly, the narrator pulls out his shuttered lantern and lets a ray of light fall slowly upon this guy's apparently creepy eyeball. Is the old man blind in that eye, or what? I don't, I don't know what the implication is. he can shine it in the eye and the old man doesn't notice, I assume that was it. Yeah, is this a disability reading? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Quote, I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. Is that a Macbeth guilt reference, the damned spot? Yeah, I assume that, well, at least he was it has to be, right? that terminology. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not mad. I'm highly sensitive. That's what our narrator says. Uh, he's so sensitive that he can actually hear, he tells us, the old man's heart ticking like a watch enveloped in cotton so i mean i've never done that i don't know what that sounds like <laughs> it's just like your pockets so no and he's like mm, maybe not actually a watch enveloped in cotton more like a drum whose beat quote stimulates the soldier into courage so our narrator leaps into the room pulls the old man onto the floor and crushes him with the bed i gotta be honest i read that and i was like what happened it's really unclear how he kills him we know he leaps on him we know he eventually puts a bed over him and somehow in that time he dies and i thought it was bed crushage <laughs> it might well be i don't know <laughs> phew thank god that dreadful heart stopped beating am i right so the narrator gets to work and again he tells us he can prove how not crazy he is because you know what this body disposal it's so logical and thorough here listen, listen to what i did you'll you'll see i'm i'm totally sane First, I, of course, dismember the corpse, making sure that a tub catches all of the blood. Would a crazy person do that? Would they? Then I took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, meaning the old man, could have detected anything wrong. Okay, yeah, but now you have a decomposing corpse under your floor. What are you going to do when your floor smells like Hellboy? Oh, I thought you were like, we want to sell the place. All of a sudden, a knock on the door. He peeks out. Cheese oh, it, it's the filth. The police have been called because a neighbor heard a shriek. Again, weird time scales. Wasn't that like an hour ago? He's had time to dismember a corpse fully and, you know, tear up floorboards and lay them back down. Well... It's the 1840s. Well, how long do you think it takes to... You don't bring 999 or 1-1 <laughs> in America. You um, probably have to go out, run around, get dressed beforehand. <laughs> Different order. <laughs> find, a, find a cop Three. in the smog. You know. It right. probably take about an hour. All right, that's me told. I'm sorry, you're right. Regardless, our narrator is very calm. They won't find jack shit. 
Sorry I had to drive all the way out here. It was just me. I shrieked in one of my night terrors. You know how I do. But come in and search all you want. Oh, uh, the old guy who lives here? <laughs> uh, he's out of the country. Uh, lots of business in Thailand. You know how it is. <laughs> and he's like, hey, how about we all go into this old man's totally undisturbed bedroom with absolutely no blood anywhere, and you can see all of his treasures in place. How about you all have a rest? I hope it's not weird if I drag a bunch of chairs into this old guy's bedroom on a very specific and not at all ironic spot. <laughs> and the officers are like, okay, seems in order. <laughs> but it sounds perfectly fine. They all sit in this old man's bedroom and chat with the guy for, for ages. I'm like, it is 4 a.m. fuckos. Party's over, boys. Let's wrap this up. So, the narrator, he starts feeling a bit poly. You know what I mean? A bit poorly. Yeah, a bit poorly. A uh, headache comes over him and his ears start ringing. A sound is getting stronger and stronger. He acknowledges that he has started acting strangely, trying to talk over this strange sound in an erratic way. As it grows louder, the narrator identifies it to be, quote, a low, dull, quick sound. The police, they, they don't know what's going on, do they? They never do. They never do. <laughs> do they? But uh, the narrator's freaking out. Quote, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, and the noise arose overall and continually increased. It grew louder and louder and louder, and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. He's going full Randy Macho Man Savage with Newman. his chair, yeah. and the police don't respond. I don't think he's actually doing that. I think this is all in his head. Okay. He thinks he's doing it, but actually he's just sitting there in a catatonic stupor. I don't think it really matters. It doesn't matter because at all. Because the story's just so clearly outrageously silly that just anything in it, just don't worry. That's what I'm thinking now. Well, what happens next then? Or doesn't happen doesn't for even that matter. matter. That's the thing I'm not even finish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, End so of episode. We're done. The cops clearly know what's going on. Or do they? Well, I'm doing a bit free and direct style. Okay. This is at least the narrator tells us. So he cracks, quote, Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. So that's the end. He, hmm. he just, he cracked under, next to no police interrogation. And they're just sitting there like, huh, it's always the ones you most expect. <laughs> I'm, whenever I see cops, I'm scared. So And you're not even in the States. Well, yeah. And uh, I'm a white man. Aged, <laughs> aged 29 to 40. Everybody listens to me. But, so I would be like that too. So, uh, so that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, great. Loved that. The end. Yeah. Spooky. <laughs> Hail the second, the fall of the House of Usher. Little asterisk, this is not the Usher who recently broke up Kiki Palmer and her homophobic baby daddy. Don't know what that means. Different, okay. uh, I know right. you don't. So, this story opens with a French quotation, because it's fancy. Quote, his heart is a suspended lute. As soon as you touch it, it resonates. I don't know what this is in reference to, considering the rest of the story, but it sounds like somebody who's way too emotionally available for me. Uh. 
So we open on another unnamed narrator. What's in a name? So this unnamed narrator is a real fucking bummer. Quote, during the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of evening drew on, within a view of the melancholy House of Usher. The text. I feel like it's trying to tell me that there's some <laughs> kind of prevailing mood in God, this. God, but what? So... The narrator says just seeing this house depresses him, and I was like, baby girl, the depression's already there. The call is coming from inside the house, friend. Um, metaphorically, in this case, they as didn't. in outside of the house. <laughs> so it's the worst possible way of using that term <laughs> in this context. Thank you. <laughs> the audience got what I was saying. Anyway. I didn't know what you were saying. <laughs> I thought you just said it wasn't in the house, and now you're saying it's in the house. I was like, what? Spooky. That's up syntax i don't want to mince my words here that's what that is i mean wow first of all you've really laid into me maybe if the two of us i'm the true socialist because i'm clearly dedicated to being publicly owned jesus the point is the house is completely ramshackle and overgrown the vibes are just and there is a giant crack that's going down the ancient facade of the building imagine like a bum that's what the house is. <laughs> the house looks a bit like an arse. It should be called the Fuller House of Arse Crack. Oh, pithy. I've got a few tips for you, Mr. Poe. Poe is one of his editors. So I just, I really can't underscore the work Poe puts into this early section talking about how much seeing this house puts our narrator in the first half of a Zoloft commercial. So what's the narrator doing in this part of the country? Well, it turns out that the house's owner, Roderick Usher, had been this dude's boyhood friend boon companion if you will <laughs> oh i will we know what that means and roderick usher and our narrator sort of fell out of touch over the years as they grew up until recently our narrator got this random letter from roderick who's incredibly unwell both physically and mentally and he's begged the narrator to come stay for a few weeks nothing suspicious here <laughs> rod find the flanders phallus. oh oh find the f- very good find the phallus a rod usher. What would that mean? He's ushering somebody else's rod to him. Queer reading. There we go. Um, I lo- I think that I've completely poisoned you for queer readings. It's scrambled your brains. Yeah. I feel like you nick either one of us now and just queer readings just pour out. We're homophiliacs. But people are liking it. People are writing in and they like it. So, Usher was a strange lad. You know, he was very reserved. And it should be said that the the Usher family in general is is kind of very reserved in its way. It's always consisted of only one, quote, direct line of descent. No cousins or anything. A bit like me. Um, You have a real Roderick Usher vibe. Yeah, I am like Roderick Usher. Pale, creepy hair. Really, really rich. Um, Gay. Weird relationship with your sister. It goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lives in a house that looks like an ass. Um, So... The family is very ancient, and it's so sort of coherent that the, the quote-unquote House of Usher, as in the dynasty, and the house itself, are sort of considered one and the same. That's, That's going to be important. The house and the family are intertwangled. Yeah. Also, what's going on there having no cousins? We all know what that means. 
little incest reading. If you will. I, I know a if lot of will. people have read this as a sort of incest reading, but yes. yeah, carry on. That's what I was alluding to. I'm just saying that, like, other critics besides us. Oh, no, I was alluding, yeah, because it's, yeah. it's famously considered an incest story. Yeah, it? we're not just being perverts. We're carrying on in a long tradition of great perverts before <laughs> us. <laughs> exactly. Standing on the shoulders of perverts. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> um, um, high heel shoes. Um, so, the narrator meets Usher in this large hall. It's all very gothic. It's got a black oaken floor, high windows that let in little light. Dark draperies on the walls. You know, imagine a spooky room. You're probably mentioning this. So, if you thought the outside was grim, wait to see the inside is the, is the gist here. <laughs> Importantly, Roderick and his sister are the very, very last of their line. And, you know, they don't look very well. So, just de- generally, there's a kind of declinist vibe going on. So, our narrator runs into Roderick, you know, first time they've seen each other in all these years. And Roderick looks like shit. Or, more accurately... Roderick looks like what a male model would look like in one of David Lynch's night terrors. Quote, Mm. A cadaverousness of complexion. An eye, large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison. Lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but of a surpassingly beautiful curve. A finely molded chin. Hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity. Can I just feel your hair, please? (laughs) What? <laughs> yeah, he's creepy and he's hot. It's very like, mm, check you out, Dusty Daddy. Queer reading 100% in this scene. So the narrator is like, mm, bit of a babe, but I can't tell if you're a drunk or an opium eater or something along those lines. Like, there's something bad going on here. Roderick confesses that actually it's some sort of congenital family disease, and there's no cure. It makes him hypersensitive, so he can't bear noise or light or annoying fabrics or strong smells or tastes of any kind. But the worst thing of all is his sister, Madeline. She's seriously ill, too, and Roderick fears that she's going to die soon. Now, her illness is a bit different, so it manifests itself in a slightly different way to his. So she falls into these death-like trances and can't be woken. And it's gotten so bad that she pretty much stays in bed all the time now. And you know what, narrator? You probably won't even see her during your trip here. That's how bedridden she is. Anyway, let's chill. So they spend a few peaceful days, you know, kind of awkwardly reading and painting and listening to Roderick play his guitar at the narrator. I just wanted to say they read a lot of weird books, don't they? Yeah. Swedenborg. Oof. Robert Flood. And Usher's favourite book is, quote, The Manual of a Forgotten Church. That's mental. Would you like to hear me read from The Manual of a Forgotten Church? Uh, weird fucking question, of course. Yeah, exactly. Why aren't we summarising that? <laughs> so, you know, the, the days are okay. They still have a little bit of their boyhood, you know, queer reading spark between them. But even that's not enough to pull Roderick out of his depression or the narrator out of his. I just want to pause here about the writing style because I hate the way this particular story is written. It's so flowery and just sort of overbearing, but I think that's actually a testament to Poe's creativity because none of his other stories are written like this. And I think he's trying to mimic a sort of aristocratic narrator. Mm. I was thinking also that because Usher is hypersensitive, he's almost recreating that sense of nausea and yes. over overburdened sensory yeah. overburden but that's why i think it's, hel- it's helpful to read many different stories by the same author and go well this one doesn't feel the same to the others mm. 
the narrators are so different if you compare this narrator to any of the yeah. others. So Roderick eventually gets into his various sort of paranoid conspiracy theories. Hey, guy, I think plants are actually sentient. Uh, do you want to hear something weirder? I think this house might actually be alive. Also, even weirder, I think my life and fate is tied up with the house. Just, like, full QAnon message board shit. Our narrator thinks that Roderick is a bit of a nutter, a bit of a hypochondriac. But it seems that Madeline is... Or should that be was? <laughs> genuinely ill. Because... About two weeks after the narrator's arrival, Roderick tells him that she is no more. Madeline, she's dead. Rip Madeline, we did not know ye at all. Also, two weeks of this, of somebody playing a guitar at you and moping around and talking about fungus? Sign me Sounds up. Like being an undergraduate. <laughs> yeah. So, because their family disease is such a medical anomaly, Roderick's really worried that the doctors are going to want to come and dig up Madeline's body and use her for scientific experiments. <laughs> the issue is because nobody donated their bodies to science, so medical doctors never had enough corpses to actually be able to properly teach at medical school, so like you couldn't really do anatomy lessons, so that's why like... They'd go and steal some. They'd, yeah, people used to steal freshly buried bodies all the time. And she's such a weird freak. Yeah, yeah they're gonna want her. big autopsy's gonna want to get their claws into that. Exactly, yes. <laughs> What they decide to do is sort of leave Madeline to lie in state. They do that by walling her up in the family vault for two weeks until she can sort of rot enough and up to the point that her body's no longer useful for medical research. So that's nice. And then only then will they bury her. So th that's good. Um, yeah, fuck science. Well, fuck anyone else who could be helped by this medical knowledge. I think that's what we're all here for, yeah. I want my sister's body to be corrupted and ruined by worms instead, as befits a lady. Well, yeah. So, Roderick and the narrator carry her body to the tomb themselves. Even worse, once she's in the tomb, the boys decide to crack open her coffin for one last peekaboo. And she looks exactly like Roderick. That's when the narrator learns that they're twins. And I don't know why this detail is important and highlighted, but I think it's something like closer than I even expected them to be. I think that's supposed to also be leaning into the incest taboo. Yeah. That there's some sort of, like, well, greater link between them. Also, I was thinking that... But he makes a big deal about in it. In the same way that there's an implied connection between the family and the house, mm -hmm. it's the same here, isn't it? There's some kind of metaphysical link between the two. Yeah, well. exactly. Although, weirder than the fact that they're twins, her cheeks are rosy. And she even looks like she's smiling. Ooh, freakish. But they're like, oh, well, you know, sometimes these things happen after death. Okay, no thank you. Back to hell you go. And they put a lid on the coffin and they depart. Now, after that, grief or, you know, his own disease, that sends Roderick into a bit of a mad spell. He becomes agitated. He stares off into the void for hours. Hmm. He paces around and becomes really paranoid. He's acting so crazy, it's even starting to affect the narrator. Now, one night... A storm starts a-brewing outside, and the narrator can't sleep. Something feels kind of off in the house to him. Before long, sure enough, Roderick bursts into the narrator's bedroom, never mind that it's the middle of the night. Now, he's in a right state, and he's asking if the narrator has, quote, seen it. So he runs to the window, throws it open despite the oncoming storm, and he says, 
look, the lake is glowing. Now, sure enough, you know, the narrator goes and checks this out. Even the very air seems to be glowing around the house. And the narrator's like, okay, none of this is helpful right now. He closes the window. He's like, Roderick, it's just a weird weather thing. Mm -hmm. Quote, it is merely electrical phenomena, not uncommon. Case closed. Yeah. You know what's going to mellow you out, Sonny? A little story that I like to call the Mad Trist. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's really what he needs right now. Some kind of psycho pornography <laughs> thing is what i'm thinking with a, a cup of milky tea and horlicks or something uh not with a w so um <laughs> so uh at one point uh while uh, our narrator reads roderick this story things get a bit sort of meta textual here i'm just going to preface this our narrator's reading this story to roderick and at one point in the story its hero ethelred tears open a door with a loud reverberating sound and just at that moment our narrator believes they hear that very same sound coming from within the house the sound is coming from within the house <laughs> the call is coming from within the house. wow that doesn't work anyway because that's literally coming from inside the house so <laughs> later in the story ethelred strikes a dragon with his mace which makes a noise quote the like whereof was never before heard and just then you know you think it's never been before heard our narrator hears that very same sound. Stop reading, then. You're clearly some sort of unintentional wizard, you fool. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, Happens too. once, shame on you. Happens twice, shame on me. Let's see what happens next. He better not do it again. A trick, um, which wizards <laughs> might do, I suppose. So, Osha seems to have not noticed. He's not asleep. He's just out of it. Then, in the story, a shield drops to the floor. Quote, No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than as if a shield of brass had indeed at the moment fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct, hollow, metallic, and clangorous, yet apparently muffled reverberation. Clangorous. That's a good word. Yeah. It's a cartoon, isn't it? It's English. You don't know about the clangors, are you? Horrified, our narrator rushes up to Usher to see if he's heard. This is when Roderick properly loses it, and he starts raving about his sister. Is she really dead? What if she had just been in one of her trances when we buried her? Oh, I know the noise is her, and she's coming to get me for my haste in burying her. I think I actually heard her moving around in her coffin a few days ago, but I couldn't bear to check it out, you know, etc., etc. Oh, how did I hear her, you ask? Remember, my condition makes me really sensitive, and I can hear everything. Or I'm just crazy. Your pick. So Roderick screams that it must be Madeline just outside the narrator's bedroom doors. And as he points to them, the doors fly open to reveal Madeline standing there and glaring all bedraggled like the girl from the ring. She's emaciated and covered in blood from scrambling her way out of the grave like a less dusty Kill Bill scene. She stumbles to her brother. We don't know if she's there to hurt him or to embrace him or what, only to fall dead in his arms. Roderick collapses with her, having died of fright. God, (laughs) how do you follow that then? I'll tell you, you you run away, don't you, like our narrator does. He runs away from the house and then suddenly sees a strange light like that of the full setting and blood red moon. Where's it coming from? Good question. He turns around and has a look. It's coming from the crack in the roof and facade of the house. I'm sorry, the house cracks and lights up like a goddamn glow stick? Um, 
It's all about rave culture. Different <laughs> rave culture, isn't it, really? Uh, the crack widens until the house seems to explode or something, and then it sinks into the lake. So that's the end of the House of Usher, in both senses. Um, lots of fun had by all, I think. Very good story. Lots of vaginal readings of them returning to the womb, putting her in the grave, the house sinking back into the lake. They're being reclaimed, well, let's reabsorbed. Let's not forget the gaseous ex- exhalations. The house could still be an ass. Just because there's a crack in something doesn't make it a bum. Tagline, right there. <laughs> Tale the Third, The Mask of the Red Death. We opened on this sort of unnamed... What's in a name? Medieval-style country. Quote, The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. What is this voice? It's my creepy American voice. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The redness and horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. So, in half an hour, you're a goner. You've, you've spurted out blood, and you're dead, Sonny. So, I just want to put a note out now. I hate that voice. I hate everything about it. It's creepy, isn't it? Yeah, it works. Um, thank you. So, it's not great, maybe for the people of this kingdom or whatever, but Prince Prospero, he's not worried. All of his people are dropping like flies, but what's he going to do? He's going to seal himself and all his thousand chums. It's like, it's like my Facebook got got like probably like two thousand. <laughs> so I'm, if anything, I'm discerning. Are I'm you? I'm doing better than Prince. Pro- no, they're all very close friendships. That's the thing. Um, a thousand? I don't even know a thousand people. This is like Kate Hudson in Glass Onion with her enormous bubble. It is like that, yeah. Yeah, he's going to get them all into his castle. You know, get the old takeaways from the delivery drivers. That's the only time they'll ever meet from someone (laughs) from the outside world. Other than that, quote, The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisatory. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these and security were, were within. Without was the red death. Improvisatori. Is that like people who don't do prefabs? AKA yo. He got an improv troupe in there. Could you imagine being locked away with an improv troupe? Nasty, yeah. In terms of the writing style of this, I think Poe is at his strongest when he's a bit more allegorical like this. I love this story. He gets right where he needs to go fast. It's straight to the point, no bullshit. I don't know how you felt about it, but I dig it. Um, this story is essentially, the substance of it is just describing rooms. <laughs> it's like cribs or something, this, isn't it? <laughs> More like a violent cribs. Is that still on? That I don't know. Something like it. There's still shit like that, though, isn't there? Tiny, well, tiny house nation, but it's a big house. Something like that. Anyway, so about six months into this isolation, the prince decides to throw an enormous masquerade ball. Now, I'd like you all to please ignore the Boris Johnson of it all, and think about how deeply I would rock a masquerade. I love the voluptuousness of a masquerade. 
I went to one once and I was one of the only people that actually participated. People showed up there wearing their fucking dockers from their accountancy job. There was like Diane from accounting straight in her business cash. And then she had like a, a, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey eye mask on. I was like, no. I think. Go home, Diane. That she was really some kind of depraved person. And normally she'd be just all in her leathers. But the most deliciously depraved thing is the banality of the modern office. Who are you, Colin Robinson? Come on. It made me furious. Hmm. You better believe I waltzed as angrily as a human being can waltz. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Have you, have you skipped over all the room stuff? No. Okay, good. I just went off on a tangent. I'm trying to pull a you. I'm trying to be more whimsical. Well, don't. Get onto it. Well, I typically run this podcast like it's the Navy, and then you complain. Okay, so Prince Prospero, he's a bit of a decadent fellow. He would have fit in really well with the Dorian Gray crowd. He's even designed the palace himself. So we pause here to learn about the creepy architecture of the place. So this masquerade ball is held over the course of seven rooms, each one weirder than the last. The prince, in designing his palace, loved everything that was beautiful and bizarre. So he constructed these rooms all at really weird angles that sort of disorient the party goers and cut off people's sight as they go from one room to the next. I really love that detail. I think that's that's creepier than some of Poe's other, like, more overtly scary stuff. Mm. And each room also has its own color, with the final grand room being black and red. There's a big clock, isn't there? You're going to mention that? In the black room with the red windows, there's a big ebony clock that tolls so loudly that the band and the revelers all have to stop every hour. Like, kind of killing the mood a bit there. And then they get back dancing again. So that's weird. And we get a look at the party goers and everyone is beautiful and weird and surreal and maybe even a little bit disgusting. And everything is perfectly glamorous and dreamlike. Importantly as well, everyone is waltzing. And I wanted to throw in a little historical detail here. At this point in history, the waltz, the thing you know as being the stuffiest possible dance, was actually considered as scandalous as like twerking or whatever. It was a new sort of dance, German, you know, foreign, Hmm. and it required people to, like a man and a woman, to dance holding each other in a semi-embrace, which is not how people typically dance before, which was... In the 18th century, it was all line dancing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all those sort of, like, country dances where at most you'll maybe hold hands as you, like... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, So this was... Icky breaky heart. Telltale heart. Is there a connection there? Nope. Um, so, when the clock strikes midnight. Which I think is a, you know, nice simple metaphor for ideas of some form of life being over. You're transitioning to a new phase. That's an easy reading I think anyone could get. Well, the clock repeatedly chiming and bothering people is also a... Countdown. Well, to, like, or a metaphor for the inevitable. Like, it's yeah. a memento mori, isn't it? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm trying to dance here. I'm hearing time pass away. Ruining the night. So... The kind of vibe at the party changes. Somebody at the party has taken it a bit too far. Let's put it that way. There's always one, isn't there? Somebody always does. Yeah. The costume that this person has adopted is, quote, even beyond the prince's indefinite decorum. So So the prince is pretty on board with, like, most twisted shit. And even this guy, he's like, what's your problem? So the music stopped. The waltzes stopped. I don't think the clock stops. (laughs) 
they don't, do they? Unless you don't wind them up. Um, quote, Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. So what is this new costume? Quote, The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. It's quite an accurate costume so far, that's what I'm getting. Okay, so it's a bit tasteless, that's, that's the problem here. What upsets the revelers in particular is that the costume is, quote, dabbled in blood. The figure's face is besprinkled with scarlet horror. This is an image of the Red Death. It's too soon. Your American accent is getting more and more, we'll say, pursed as time goes on. You are you are a heartbeat away from Connecticut, friend. I kind of want to do that, yeah. Yeah, okay, I'm just letting you know that it's it's just intriguing to me. I just want to see how many um, sweaters over your shoulder we can drape that just pile up and up yeah, and up. crushed. Prince Prospero loses his rag. How dare you mock the suffering of... Well, not of us, obviously, <laughs> but of my people who I locked outside to suffer, who I am very much thoughts and prayersing. Guards, grab this blackguard and take his costume off. Once we see who's under there, we'll swing him from the battlements tomorrow. Only, no one wants to grab this guy and take his costume off. Everyone's sort of backing away, going very, no, you do it. No, you do it. So the new guest just silently walks from one room to the next, totally unimpeded, and everyone stands back in shock. And honestly, Daniel, this is how I entered my high school prom, also in a grave shroud. All eyes turned, and quite a few stomachs. <laughs> <laughs> Love that joke. <laughs> that is, did you find my high school yearbook? Because that was, uh, <laughs> That's that was my senior it? quote. Yeah. Um, so the new guest reaches the final black and red room. I guess we would now call this a room with a boo? Hey, if this were a live show, there would be at least a smattering of applause for that. <laughs> I, bet you, I bet you Jeff from Ferndale is giving a half-hearted chuckle right now. No, you didn't like that? No. There's more where that came from. Come, come on, yeah. Okay. Keep going. So... <laughs> Prince Prospero, who's still in the first room, he finally regains his composure. Am I not the boldest and the bravest of all men? Fuck this guy and his horse of the apocalypse that he rode in on. <laughs> so, grabbing a dagger and striding through all seven of his weird-ass rooms, Prince Prospero runs up on the guest and stabs him in the back. Or, at least he would have stabbed him in the back. A slight problem, though. As he swings the knife, Prince Prospero falls down dead. Yeah. Everyone's like, okay, this is the giddy limit. It's one thing to kill our prince, but you killed the party. The crowd surges forward and grabs the figure and they rattle the costume off him. But wait, there's nothing underneath. Shit. They find that they're grasping an empty shroud. The Red Death itself had gotten dressed in its best glad rags and came to the party. Quote, he had come like a thief in the night. Which is a line I don't buy, because a thief in the night doesn't make a grand fucking entrance like an act two Phantom of the Opera. But it's too late for all the partiers. One by one, they all start coughing up blood, and they drop to the floor. In short, your wealth won't protect you, dummies. 
darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. It's a great ending. Question. Yeah. No question about the, the thing, the party. Blue, purple, green, orange, white, violet, and black and red room. People always kind of hang around one room at parties. Which do you think you would be going for? Given my colouring, I'd probably be in the purple room. It depends what shade. That's the problem. I just think it would be oppressive. That's why you mingle. You work. You work the rooms. You, you move never. You, you think you're going to do that? This is my experience. You think you're going to do that, and you don't. You just get stuck on the sofa next to some boring person, and you can't get away, and you drink too much. Well, that was the end of that story, Daniel, but we still have several to go. I don't know that we're going to make it. How very creepy. (laughs) What, drawing it out, drawing out this nightmare, this waking nightmare. Yes. (laughs) So, okay, you know, we'll be back in two weeks with more Poe short stories. We'll finish up the ones that we haven't covered. We'll do the casting the bad good reads the analysis and our clue to the next episode next time right and uh yeah from dana and myself happy halloween everybody see ya you got no spooky sign off and there's something about you put a green pumpkin out and that means you want you you can give vegan snacks just a little tip (laughs) really (laughs) something like that yeah Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.